0: One of the things Chick-fil-A restaurants like this are known for is being closed on Sundays. According to their website, this is because their founder knew what it was like to work seven days a week in restaurants himself, and he wanted his employees to have an opportunity to rest and worship if they chose to. The Jewish people had a similar practice called the Sabbath day, although for them it was on Saturday rather than Sunday. In chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, We see Jesus rubbing up against religious and cultural elites of his day, who seem to have a different interpretation than he does about what it really looks like to honor the Sabbath. We read, At the time Jesus went through the grain field on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answers them with stories from the Old Testament about how both King David and the temple priests were allowed to do things on the Sabbath that others were not. The not-so-subtle implication Jesus is making is that He is the true King and the true priest of Israel. He says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now you may remember that back in chapter 10, Jesus gave the Pharisees an assignment. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. That's a quotation from the Old Testament in Hosea 6.6. 6. Now it becomes evident that they didn't really do their homework because Jesus says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. But the Pharisees refused to learn. Instead, they looked for a chance to test him further. At a synagogue meeting, a man shows up with a disabled hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he's shown them up and now they're furious. They plot to kill him, but Jesus doesn't challenge them directly. He just quietly slips away. But later on, he's healing again, driving out demons. And the Pharisees again make this outrageous claim. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And Jesus responds with this warning. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with the wicked generation. Jesus has been busy setting people free from the forces of evil, giving them rest, the true meaning of Sabbath. But these religious leaders can't see it, and they're in danger of ending up even more under the power of Satan than ever.
1: Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Those of you who are in the room, uh, I want to say, if you would, as we wind down our service here in a few minutes, um, at at the close of the service, we normally just do a benediction or prayer, and everybody kind of scatters. If you would, just stay seated. Uh, We're going to have a a talk about some things that are coming up in our near future, if you don't mind. If you have to get somewhere, I completely understand. But again, thank you so much for being here today. I want to welcome all those who are watching online, on television as well. For those of you who are in the room, would you please give a big hand to our online television audience? as we do uh every week uh, man i tell you what tyler, where's tyler there you are man that great job with scripture reading didn't tyler do a great job yeah but now i'm hungry and so all right let, let's see how fast i can get through this then anyway now as we do every week uh, we're gonna pray for another church in the river region and today we're gonna pray for Flatline Church Pastor Dwayne Rembert wonderful man I got to meet him several months ago so thankful for them and their ministry in the Chisholm area and so as we pray for ourselves Let's lift them up to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this space right here, right now. We thank you for what you're doing with in every person's life who's watching online and on television right now. And Lord, we thank you for Flatline Church. Lord, we pray you'd be with Pastor Dwayne. Lord, would you protect him, keep him safe, inspire his mind. Lord, be with this church and all their members. Lord, would you keep them safe and help them continue to build and grow the kingdom. And Lord, right here... Right now, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. If you would please turn to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. That was the text that was just read for us on the screen. We're going to get there in just a moment. Today, what we're going to look at is how to follow Jesus when the church does not. How do you follow Jesus when the religious people around you are not so good at following Jesus? And uh, we're going to get to that answer here in just a few moments. Uh, I want to start here, though, because it's an issue in our text. I want to start with this concept of Sabbath. Sabbath. In the first century world, in Jesus' day, the Sabbath was a really big deal. Uh, But the Sabbath has a long history, long history. God is the one who started this thing called the Sabbath, a day of rest, in fact, if you, uh, I'll give you four points here. One is God values rest. God values rest. God does not value laziness, but God values rest. When God has given the law to his people in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 says this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So what we see from the very beginning, the very beginning of even creation, is that God values rest. Number two is that God wants you to rest. God wants you to rest. As God's people, we are called to follow God's pattern. In fact, rest for God is not just a good idea. It's not just a good health thing for you to do. Rest is actually commanded by God commanded by God. We see in the law in Leviticus 23 verse 3, it says, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly, where God's people come together in worship. It is the Lord's Sabbath day, it says, and it must be observed, watch this, wherever you live wherever life takes you he says make sure that you take time to come together with God's people in this holy assembly and take a day of rest but not only does God value rest not only does God want you to rest not only that but God also wants you to be productive in life right we see this over and over in scripture we see words like Proverbs fourteen twenty three. it says work brings profit but mere talk leads to poverty we know that when we work hard it will bring profit of some kind into our life but just talking about things takes us nowhere and we all know people we've all maybe at one point or another been one of those people who we say one day I will one day I will do this one day I'll reach that goal one day I'll set a goal (laughs) right one day I will get there and it gets us nowhere So while God values rest, God wants us to rest, he also wants us to be productive. But what scripture teaches us is, fourth thing, is that God wants you to have a rhythm, a rhythm of work and rest in your life. There has to be a rhythm of work and rest in your life. Psalm 127 verse two says this. It says, it is useless for you to work so hard from early morning till late at night, anxiously working for food to eat for God gives rest to his loved ones that verse tells us it it is useless to just work all the time there has to be a rhythm of work and rest we actually run into what uh, many of us know as the law of diminishing return you ever heard of the law of diminishing return it's where you keep going you keep working but you're actually not being productive at all because you're just too tired to be productive What we see in scripture is there's this rhythm of work and rest. We rest from our work, but we also rest for our work. Now, you may be sitting there going, why are you talking about all that? Well, in the first century world, the Sabbath had become a great point of contention. Matter of fact, the religious elite in the first century world, in Jesus' day, uh, they summarized the law in three ways. Number one... Circumcision. Number two, food laws. And number three, the Sabbath. Circumcision for males when they were born. Food laws, kosher laws, every day of your life. And the Sabbath, a day of rest once a week. Now Jesus, when he came along, he summarized the law in a very different way. Very different way, right? Jesus says the whole law, what the whole law is about, is about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as you love who? Yourself in a healthy way. Loving God, loving neighbor, and yes, loving yourself in a healthy way. That's how Jesus summarized the law. The religious elite in his day though, they said, no, 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 no. It's about keeping three main rules. If you read the gospels, if you read the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, you'll see that these three issues come up over and over and over again. Circumcision when you're born for males, food laws every day, and then the Sabbath. But here's the thing about the Sabbath. The religious people in Jesus' day, they wanted to control the Sabbath because they wanted to use it to monitor people's spiritual lives. They wanted to control people's spiritual lives because religious people always want control. Religious people always want control. And they wanted to use the Sabbath and all the rules that they put on the Sabbath, again, to control people instead of letting the Sabbath be a way that we as God's people represent God on the earth. That's ultimately the purpose of the Sabbath. That was the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a way in which we as God's people represent God. We are a healthy witness to God on the planet. So when we work for six days and we rest on the seventh day, we are actually saying to the world, no, we can take a day of rest because we're trusting God to provide for us. Not only is it healthy for us, but we're also trusting God to provide. And in fact, on those days, we go and take offerings. It's not about what we receive. And the Sabbath was about representing God to the world. And they missed it. The religious people in Jesus' day missed the point. If you look in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says this. And whatever you do, whatever you say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him, to God the Father. Over and over scripture tells us this, whatever you're doing in life, whether you're resting, whether you're working, do it as a representative of God. Ultimately that's what we're called to do and that's who we're called to be and that's what the Sabbath was for. 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, so whether you eat or drink, if you're sitting down to have a meal, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God that the phrase glory of God let God be on display in what you were doing everything you do again whether you're working whether you're resting that was the point point. and again the religious leaders missed it let's go to Matthew chapter 12 again the text that was read for us verse 1 it says at about that time Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. I want you to get this picture in your mind. Jesus and his disciples are walking through grain fields. You got that picture in your mind? Grain fields. They're hungry. So the disciples start popping off some heads of grain. You roll it in your hand. It rolls it away, and you have a raw uh, kernel of grain, and they were popping them in their mouth. You see that? Just a snack, right? Right? They didn't have a 7-Eleven or whatever gas station to stop by. Just a snack, okay? Notice what happens in verse 2. But some Pharisees saw them do it. Okay, time out. I always wonder, what are the Pharisees doing there anyway? You ever wondered that? It's like, are they just following them around? And I always picture, it's like, you know, the, the Jesus and the disciples walking through the grain fields. I just picture, you know, there's like wheat out there and the Pharisees just kind of like, You know, know, I I don't know, I don't know. But they're following him around and they see him do it, it seems like. It says, and they protested. Listen to this. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. It's very official sounding, isn't it? Harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Are you kidding me? They were taking some heads of grain in their hand rolling it around, popping it in their mouth, and all of a sudden this is turned into harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Religious people love to exaggerate things. Always exaggerating things. <laughs> Verse 3, Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did with his companions when they were hungry? How they went into the house of God. He and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. Jesus says, haven't you read your Bible? Verse 5, and haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple, they may work on the Sabbath? Verse 6, I tell you, he says, there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you should not or, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. And here's the key. He says, I desire mercy, not your sacrifices. I desire mercy, not your sacrifices. And he says, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You see, religious people love external, showy sacrifices because it gets them praise. Oh, how good you are. Jesus says, I'm not about that. I'm about mercy. That's what comes first. Being a person of mercy. You see, mercy is not an external sacrifice. Mercy is an internal sacrifice. It's not about getting praise from people. It's personal It's personal. And Jesus is looking at the religious elite of his day, people who are highly trained and qualified. And he's saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. You see, mercy, here's my definition of it. Mercy is not giving someone something or what you think they deserve. Not giving someone what you think they deserve. So many times that's how we live life. I think they deserve this. I think they deserve that. They should get this. They should get that. Mercy is you not giving them what you think they deserve. And instead you forgive them. And instead you seek their good. Yes, there's a time for justice. Yes, there's a time when there should be punishment and things should be made right. But in everyday living, guys, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus says, I want you to be people of mercy. Not just walking around hoping that people get what you think they deserve. I really believe that for each and every one of us, A part of God's will for our life is to be people of mercy. The classic passage on this is Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says this, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. You don't have to guess. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. If you ever wonder, what does God require of me? What does God want from me? Here's what it is. To do what is right, to love what? Mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To do what is right, to love mercy, not the concept of mercy, not the concept, not the idea, but to love being a person of mercy and walk humbly with God. The New Testament says it this way in 1 Peter 3.9. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. Do not retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, do something different. Pay them back with a blessing. And then he says this, this is what God has called some of you to do. Oh, sorry, I misread that. This is what God has called pastors to do. Sorry, I misread that again. This is what God has called the navy seals of Christianity to do. So this is what God's called you to do. You. And he will grant his blessing. Colossians 3:12. Since God chose who? Y- you. You know, if we were writing this in Southern English, he'd say, y'all. Since God chose y'all to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with what? Tender heart and mercy. It starts there. You have to be a person of mercy if you're going to be kind, if you're going to have humility and gentleness and patience. Tender heart and mercy. You see, when it comes to me and mercy, we need to understand three things. Number one, it's commanded by God. I'm commanded by God to be a person of mercy. It's not optional. Number two, we are called by God to show mercy to others in that way we represent Him. It's commanded, we're called. And the third thing is this. The degree to which I show people mercy, it reveals my character. My character. Now, I can ignore the command, I can deny the calling, and I can corrupt my character by always seeking revenge and doing the gossip and the anger and the slander thing. But that just corrupts me. And every one of us have to wrestle with this and say, am I gonna take up this command, am I gonna take up this calling, and am I gonna let this shape my character and be a person of mercy? Go back to Matthew 12, verse nine. It says, after the encounter where he says, in the field, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Verse nine, he says, then Jesus went over to their synagogue. Jesus is going to church, all right? Verse 10, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand, or some of your translations say a withered hand. Now, here's the issue. This man with a withered hand or deformed hand, his problem here is that he, well, how how do they pray? How do men pray whenever they're in church in the first century? They lift their hands. The problem is he has a deformed one, which means... He cannot worship properly. If he goes to the temple to offer a sacrifice, someone has to assist him. He cannot do it on his own. He cannot worship properly. But all of a sudden, he's there now. And the religious people have him there for a particular reason. It says this, Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed or withered hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person, I don't know why the Pharisees sound British whenever I read it that way, but anyway, sorry. Does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? Again, notice the formal question here. Does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? And then the text says they were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. They ask Jesus this question, and he looks at them, and he says this. If you had a sheep, he goes, think with me a second, guys. Just think. Let's use logic. If you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull it out? He says, of course you would. Notice that Jesus is using the image of a sheep. It was Jesus who told us a story about Sheep and one of them getting lost. Do you remember this? The parable of the 99 and the one? Jesus says, oh, no, no. You leave the 99 to go get the one. He's looking at them going, I think your one's here. It says, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you go and pull it out? Of course you would, verse 12. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep He said, just think about it. And then he says this, yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Their question was, um, does, does the law permit a person to do the work by healing? He goes, it's not work. It's being human. It's just doing good. And yes, you can do that. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. And then verse 14, then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Religious people love calling meetings and plotting. And Jesus says, go ahead. Mercy, mercy is what Jesus is trying to drive them toward, help them understand that if we are going to follow this kind of God, we have to be people with mercy. Mercy starts with our motives, but it is revealed through our words and our actions, not our intentions. Not our intentions. Real mercy on the ground is seen through our words and our actions toward others. And the most genuine kind of mercy that we could ever extend to someone else is when we show mercy when no one else is around. When we show mercy when no one else is there to pat us on the back. I hope right now the question that's in your mind is, how can I be a person of mercy? I want to talk to the Christians in the room for a second to the Christians watching online on television. So if you're a Christian, you know I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to talk to you for a minute. If you're a Christian and you're asking the question, how can I be a person of mercy in this world? I think you can be a person of mercy in greater ways if you do two things. Number one is this, is that you have to remember how merciful God has been to you. Remember how merciful God has been to you. Oh, how quickly we forget just how much mercy we have needed in the past and God has given us in the past. We forget so fast just how much we've needed. And so many times, because we forget how much mercy we've needed in our past, it makes us self-righteous in the present. Because we think somehow we got here today and it was our doing when it was God's. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 and 19 says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? Who does not retain his anger forever? Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That is the kind of God that we have. And we have to remember that God does this for us. Each and every one of us. The first thing we have to do is we have to remember just how much mercy we have needed and we have received in our past. Christians in the room, second thing is this, is that we have to stay close to God and continue to receive his mercy in the present. We have to remember how much he's given us in the past, but also stay close to God and continually receive his mercy in the present. You see, we become self righteous when we distance ourselves from true righteousness, which is God Himself. When we distance ourselves from God, I don't care how many songs you know, how many Bible verses you know, how often you pray. We can do all of that and go through the motions. The Pharisees have proven that to us. We can do all of that and it means nothing. But when we make sure that in the midst of all of that we're doing, that we're truly connecting with God, when we are doing that, we're staying close to God, who is the truly righteous one, that his righteousness is what saturates our life and not the righteousness that we create for ourselves and think that it's ours. Is this making sense? When you distance yourself from God, you always become self-righteous. You either walk in his or walk in your own. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So many times when we quote that verse, it's as if let's draw close to the throne of grace so that we can get the help we need. Notice it says, let us draw close to the throne of grace. Yes, so that we can first receive the mercy we need and find the grace. And the help we need in life. Because every moment of every day, my friends, we need mercy. We need God not giving us what we deserve. Jude 21 says, keep yourselves. 121, keep yourself. Notice that phrase, keep yourself. This is your job. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourselves. Make sure you stay in the love of God. For those of you who are Christians in the room, if you want to be a person of mercy, you have to remember, remember how merciful God has been to you in the past and stay close to God and continually receive his mercy in the present. And for those of you who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm telling you, for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that's our prayer for this series, for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, In heaven, it takes us, the body of Christ, being people of mercy. And Jesus came to say, You can. You can be a person of mercy. You can be. You don't have to be self righteous anymore. You don't have to carry that anger anymore. You don't have to be bitter anymore. You don't have to be cynical anymore. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to hold grudges anymore. You can be a person of mercy because of his power in your life. Now that was to the Christians. If you're here or you're watching online on television, you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be. I want to be a person of mercy. It starts with receiving His mercy. That's where it all starts. You can't give something you don't, re- you don't have. You can give a cheap counterfeit rip-off, but you can't give what you don't have. And it starts with receiving His mercy for yourself and whenever you receive it you can reflect it and give it to others in the world. And it takes you just starting saying, God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Would you forgive me? Wash your mercy over me Let me receive it so I can give it to others. Whether you're a Christian in the room or watching on television online or a non-Christian in the room or watching on television online, we both need the same thing. We need mercy today. Whether it's mercy again or mercy for the first time. And whatever God's doing in your life, my prayer, no matter where you are in life, my prayer is that you will receive that mercy today so that when you walk out these doors and you go live into this week, you can give it to others. Be an agent of mercy. The world desperately, desperately needs it. And you can be a part of that. Amen? Father, right now, for those of us in the room, for those of us watching online, on television, or for those of us who have been walking with you and following you and we believe in you. We believe in your word. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe in your son. Lord, I pray that we would once again receive the mercy we need. Lord, forgive us for those moments when we've gotten away and we've started relying on our own righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we would draw near to you so that we can receive the mercy that we need today so that we can be agents of mercy in the world. Lord, for those who are in the room or watching, who have never said yes to you for the first time, I pray they would right now. Lord, I pray that they would just simply say, God, I need a Savior wash your mercy over my mind, over my heart, over my soul, over my life. Forgive me of my sin. Make me complete and whole and help me to live a new life, a life of mercy in you. So Lord, as we go into this last song, no matter where we are, I pray that we would receive what you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said...